I understand where people are coming from and what they need. At the same time, I understand what environmentalists are wanting to accomplish and the need to accomplish those things. And unfortunately, with the way that environmental organizers were communicating in communities with their protests and anti-coal messaging that's viewed as kind of elitism from a lot of mining communities, it fed directly into all the coal industry rhetoric and just intensified the divide. And I realized we have to do something about that. This is Climate Conversations, a podcast by ClimateX. Welcome to Season 2 of Climate Conversations. I'm Rajesh Kasirangan in the Office of Open Learning, earlier known as the Office of Digital Learning, <laughs> NMIT, with my colleague, Laura Howells. Hi, Rajesh. How are you? I'm really fine. Um, I, this is going to be a great season on mm-hmm. climate justice. Uh, we have some fantastic interviews lined up, including the first one today, which is with Nick Mullins, um, ex-coal miner and now an environmental and climate activist. Great. Let's take a listen. In this week's Climate Conversations, we have a wonderful new conversational partner, Nick Mullins, ninth-generation Appalachian, fifth-generation ex-coal miner. Yes. Uh, who cares more about the future of his children than the profits of coal companies. And we are very, very happy to have Nick here in the studio with us. And we also have, of course, our old comrades in arms. Hi, I'm Laura Howes from ClimateX. And Dave Damluer, also from ClimateX. Glad to have you here, Nick. Thank you. Glad to be here. So, Nick, nine generations. So how many years ago? Let's see. Well, to our family recollection... I believe my sixth great-grandfather moved to western North Carolina into those mountains in the mid-1700s, so 18th century. His son would eventually uh, move the family to southwestern Virginia in 1829, which is where we would end up uh, settling and staying until, well, until I moved my family away to, to Berea, Kentucky in 2011. I'd love to ask a question as an outsider then, as someone who possibly doesn't understand the, or doesn't have much knowledge of the heritage um, and your experience as a ninth generation Appalachian. Uh, could you tell me a little bit about what that was like for you growing up? I uh, had to frame it a little bit uh, with, with some context of, of what the industry has done to the region. Of course, we were Scots-Irish uh, people who ended up in the mountains to escape and find our freedom and liberty away from the uh, indentured servitude that was occurring. They had actually come over to escape the tenant farming abuse in Scotland, or excuse me, Ireland. So they had moved to the mountains, you know, had acclimated themselves to it, learned how to live off the land much the way the Cherokee had coexisted. And over time, though, they were eventually uh, found out to have landed basically on massive amounts of coal and timber resources. So over the decades, as those were developed, our families were more or less forced into some degrees of exploitation uh, with the coal companies honing our mineral rights, having purchased them. So this was kind of the cultural knowledge that I was brought up with. My father was the fourth generation of our family to work in the underground coal mines. Um, He was a union miner, as were my grandfathers, uh, my great-grandfather. So we had a good understanding of the coal industry's true intents in the region and that we couldn't trust them and that they were just there to exploit both our resources and our labor to extract it. 
So growing up, I had a fairly close to middle class raising, I guess you could say. You know, my dad was working a good union mining job. We had a lot of the things that other kids had in the 1980s, Nintendos and things. But in, towards the end of the 80s, uh, I, I really got to see exactly the truth of the industry whenever the Pittston Coal Company, the larger producer and employer in our area, had decided to take away all the health care benefits from their pensioners, disabled minors, widows, and, of course, retirees. And our entire community and 1,500 miners walked out to of their jobs and gave up their paychecks to protect those. So it was uh, it was really an interesting mix. I mean, I was both being to some degree indoctrinated into uh, materialism and what America is through C-band satellite and television. But also I was with my family who had traditionally avoided a lot of uh, a lot of that and tried to stay out of debt and maintain some of the old ways of living off the land and finding themselves to be very resilient in terms of growing gardens and things. So you, you actually uh, then took a job as a coal miner yourself. That's what I understand. Eventually, yeah. Actually, our families didn't want the younger generations to go in the mines. Um, it was good work, but it also came with long-term health effects. You know, you, even if you did the best you could, you usually came out with some sort of black lung. And it, it was always cyclical, so you had your booms and your busts. There was no real job security. So they always wanted us to go on and do better, encouraged us to do well in school. The old Gene Ritchie song, uh, the L&N Don't Stop Here Anymore, you know, when I was a curly-headed baby, my daddy sat me on his knee and said, uh, you know, son, go to school and do your letters and don't end up like a coal miner like me. And there was a lot of truth to that. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we were encouraged to go to college if we could, you know, to do well in school and escape that fate. And unfortunately, our coal field school systems aren't really the most adept at sending students on to college. Mm-hmm. A lot of times they were very underfunded. Teachers were forced to kind of mitigate those issues and choose the students who they felt had the most chance. But eventually, I did graduate high school. I didn't go on to college. Uh, I should have, but I just gave up. Mm-hmm. And, and I tried to do everything I could. I moved away from the region, moved to Indiana, hoping to become a full-time firefighter. Uh, didn't quite do that. I ended up going to Knoxville, hoping to get into computers, since I had mm-hmm. a good knowledge of computers. One of the nice things about my father having worked a good union job and been able to afford us a Commodore at one time. <laughs> So going back a little ways. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but, you know, coming out of the mountains without with a coal field education at a coal field public school, I was ill prepared to, to be in Knoxville or any other place. Mm-hmm. So landed back home a lot, even went into the military for a short time, tried to follow my brother's footsteps. Mm-hmm. Uh, and eventually did land a decent job at a local economic development uh, job we consider them to be. It was a call center doing tech support for Crutchfield, Car Stereo's home theater system. Sure. So it provided close to a living wage, but not quite enough to raise kids on. No retirement to speak of. Uh, Paycheck to paycheck, couldn't put anything into a 401k. So I ended up putting, after seven years, I had $7,000 in my 401k. So I was like, yeah, this math doesn't add up. Mm -hmm. I searched desperately for other jobs. 
uh, trying to find something else that would provide a living wage, retirement, railroads, utility companies, but those jobs were so highly competed for it. I was told that many times. Ended up uh, going to the only thing I could find, mm-hmm. coal mining, after mm-hmm. about 10 years of avoiding it. Mm-hmm. And and I'm sure your story has been replicated across the region. Mm-hmm. There has been a lot of different stories of out-migration, some people that moved out and were able to stay away. Uh, my first cousin, uh, she and her husband moved to Morristown, Tennessee, where they still reside. I have aunts and uncles, well, more importantly, one aunt who actually made it to Knoxville and stayed there. Uh, but there's, and there's other members of my family that have out-migrated to the northern cities. So it's it's very common and common for people to end up in the mines. I worked, whenever I started in 2007, I was hired in with a bunch of gentlemen about my age who had worked at the other economic development for the region in the 90s, state super maximum security prisons including Red Onion, which was on the recent HBO documentary, Solitary. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they actually kind of came from off of the hill as, as prison guards down into the valley below to work at Deep Mine 26. Uh, they preferred that over being prison guards, of course, for good reason. Mm-hmm. You know, that's your choices. You know, be a prison guard at a super maximum security prison or work in a coal mine to earn a living for your family. So from your insider's perspective, what's happening to the coal economy in that region right now? Well, natural gas has finally become uh, abundant enough and cheap enough to, to overpower the, the coal industry's hold on the electrical generation sector. It's mm-hmm. plain and simple. So it's driven down uh, the, the demand for coal in terms of electrical generation. Power plants, uh, aging coal-fired power plants are being shut down left and right. And if a utility company has the ability to, to open up a, a natural gas plant without the cost of building scrubbers and having to deal with the legacy costs of ash, then of course they're going to go with the cheapest, easiest, cleanest thing that's um, more compliant with current regulations. Uh, so the coal industry's taken a real hit. Um, the other coal that we produce in Appalachia is metallurgical coal, mm-hmm. which is what I predominantly mined. And that uh, market fluctuates highly on the global market. In 2008, it peaked out in the $300 per ton range. And our mine was producing 1.7 million tons. So that, if you want to do that math. Right. But it was mostly being exported to... 510 million. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. So... And that's, I think I, I got onto the Energy Information Administration website, and of course I couldn't get exact numbers on export prices to average them because those figures were locked out of all the reports, and I still can't figure out why. I need to send out a Freedom of Information Act. But what I was able to ascertain off of the, the overall 15-year average price for metallurgical exports in the country that my, and what that mine produced, they produced close to $1.9 billion in 15 years use an average of 250 to 300 workers. And that... That's a lot per mm-hmm. worker. And if I'm not mistaken, a lot of my family members used to own a lot of the land that uh, that mine was bringing the coal out from underneath. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So is that a big part of the struggle? Who owns the natural resource in the first place? Absolutely. Well, the, the coal industry... Uh, well, it was started out with land agents and timber companies. They, after they... After the Civil War, after uh, some of your officers had come through the region and had an eye for this sort of thing, whenever they returned north, 
they came with stories of the vast timber and coal resources, as well as missionaries who had come to Appalachia to do missionary work. And so it piqued the interest of a lot of different, uh, I guess, corporations in the north, and they sent out land agents to come and procure land and mineral rights predominantly. And they preyed upon the, the hospitality of Appalachian people. They would come, spend a night, be fed, and offer people uh, money for their mineral rights that usually ended up pennies on the acre, well, sometimes 25 cents, and sometimes they wouldn't even trade money. The story goes that uh, some of the members of my family traded off over 300 acres of mineral rights for 13 hogs and 12 rifles. And they got off better than some people. Uh, And there are stories that go back of people who were falsely arrested by local law enforcement who were working in conjunction with land agents and coal companies. And in order to be able to make their bail, they had to offer up their mineral rights. So that's why 70 to 75 percent of our mineral rights are owned by out-of-state companies. And we have, we get no benefit from them except for uh, the, the wages of mining it and the health that goes along with it. So I'd be curious to know, you no longer a coal miner, so there was a, some sort of transition there mm-hmm. from being a coal miner to the kinds of things that you've been doing recently. If you could tell our listeners a little bit about what that transition out of coal mining and into, you know, next phases look like, that would yeah. be great. Well, I mean, I had to talk myself to go into coal mining to begin with. Sure. I mean, I, I felt like to some degree a failure because I hadn't succeeded. I was So I had to talk myself into it and built up this real belief that coal mining uh, wasn't as bad as I originally thought. My parents had told me. Mm-hmm. The unions had been busted in the 90s, uh, so th- th- those days were gone. And the companies had done a really good job at, at publicizing and doing public relations for showing themselves as a benevolent force in the region, that they're, they're running right, they're doing things better, that there's no need for unions anymore, that they're safer. And I bought into it. Um, so I went into the mines, and I really enjoyed it at first, being able to finally connect and talk to my family about things that, uh, you know, my father and my uncles and relate those stories. But over time, I don't know, I just kept realizing more and more how bad people were being treated without the union there was so much competition amongst miners. I remember I think I'd been working three months and I was working with one of the older guys and I said, man, my dad used to say that running coal was fun. He says, well, Nick, it used to be, but that was before they started rushing us and before they started finding every way to milk it out of us. 10 hour work days, uh, rotating shifts, mandatory overtime. And um, anytime that there was a possibility of layoffs, they always framed it as performance based. So you develop this culture of competition amongst the miners. So, you know, we're living in a region that has no other job alternatives except for service industry or working as a prison guard. And you build up uh, your debts and your lifestyle around a coal mining wage. What are you going to do to protect it? And unfortunately, it, it separated a lot of us. So the coal industry had finally gotten what they wanted, a desperate workforce willing to compete with one another, to make sure that they're not the next ones in the layoffs. So I saw this as a, you know, and realized it and thought about it. Tried to get the union involved, um, wanted them to come in and organize, but uh, I don't know, after I finally spoke with them and gave them my name and information, things started changing the way I was treated at the mine. Some people had warned me that there was a possibility that they were working in conjunction with the companies. 
that there was some low-level corruption there. So I can't confirm it. But uh, So the next people that I reached out to were environmental organizers. My father had picked up copies of the Appalachian Voice, which was from an environmental organization out of North Carolina, who had been talking about the fracking issues. And I had heard that I'd seen coal country and saw that there were other former miners involved in it. So I kind of got involved in environmentalism through that those channels. But, um, you know, I was still very much uh, scared of, of losing my job, so I had to kind of do it on the sly. Uh, but unfortunately, during the summer of 2010, we suffered a, a tremendous loss. We lost my, my great-grandparents' home to a fire that we were living in. And, uh, I'm really sorry to hear that. Yeah, but I don't know. In, in the months to follow, it really led me to think about life in a lot of different ways. And I had a really good support network of friends and family who who were there to take care of me. And I don't know, after, after that and seeing th- how things were and opening up and understanding all the issues, I realized I, I couldn't continue working at the mines and we would just have to try something different. And... I just couldn't reconcile doing the things to the land and to future generations that I was doing just to earn a paycheck and to have things that I really didn't need anyway. And that must have been a massive transition, obviously for yourself, but also for your family. Was that a tough thing to to convince people of? Was that a was that a really tough transition to actually go through yourself? Mm-hmm. It was. I mean, uh, my immediate family were supportive. Uh, you know, my my kids, they, they were very resilient. I'm so tickled with the way that they just kind of bounced back from it all. And uh, it was it was definitely changed, but it was also a little bit of freedom because one thing that my ex-wife told me was that after I left the mines, I became a different person. I was no longer grumpy and grouchy and, you know, miserable to, to live with. Uh, so that helped. But as as time went on and I got more into the environmental thing or side of things, I did start ne- seeing some resistance from more extended family. Um, those that still work in the coal industry or definitely see me as kind of getting above my raising, as the as they say, or too big for my britches, which is <laughs> another Appalachian saying that I was just uh, going too far beyond where I came from. But I think over the past few years since I've transitioned away from the real environmental activism to more minor and mining community advocacy, they understand a little bit more about where I'm coming from and have been more accepting of it. Mm -hmm. So in terms of the advocacy that you just talked about, um, what sort of things do you do? Well, um, yet again, I'm an Appalachian, so everything comes with a story. Uh, Whenever I really got involved in environmental activism, I couldn't help but think about during the marches and the protests and the things that a lot of local organizers were doing and even you know national organizers that this wasn't reaching our mining communities that it was being seen as eccentric and extremist and completely out of touch by mining communities my family included uh, men that I worked with at the mines and you could see it evidencing itself whenever there were protests in the mountains the coal miners and coal mining families would come out in defense of the coal industry, which, of course, the coal industry was working on themselves as well with their public relations campaigns. Mm. And the way war that, on coal, that sort of thing. The war on coal, uh, friends of coal, they acculturated Appalachian values. Uh, Dr. Shannon Bell, a sociologist, 
wrote her dissertation on it, that and a few other things, but basically outlining how the coal industry came in and used our own cultural icons to show themselves to be a part of the communities. And I feel that they were better able to do this and accomplish this because people didn't like the environmentalists. You know, they didn't like the way that they were coming in and telling everybody, well, you know, what you're doing is wrong. we got to stop this and that coal is bad. And, of course, this has been our heritage. And even though our forefathers didn't know the negative impacts of coal and what happened, you know, in terms of climate change and pollution and things, it was we sacrificed everything for it. Mm. 104,000 coal miners have been killed in this nation since 1900. So that didn't sit very well with local people. It became a situation of, you know, we know the coal industry's bad, but at least they're here for us. They're saying they're here for us. They are giving us jobs, and they appreciate us, or at least they put it across that way. Mm-hmm. And same for the politicians. But the environmentalists were just, you know, beating their, uh, their, their fists on their doors and not literally, but a lot of people see it that way. So do you see it as a messaging issue or is there something substantially, like is there a genuine conflict that cannot be resolved? Well, it was, I believe it's absolutely messaging and communications. That's the reason after I left the mines and got more involved in environmental activism and went back to college, I actually switched from a major that I intended to work in renewables and energy efficiency into communications because I saw this this intense divide. And it's like, as long as we can not communicate and get these messages across to the working class people that there are negative impacts, that this is damaging our health, and that we do have to move on and transition away from this, that we'll never build enough political support to actually achieve that. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, with the way that environmental organizers were communicating in communities uh, and nationally with their protests and anti-coal messaging, um, and that's viewed as kind of elitism from a lot of mining communities, it fed directly into all the coal industry rhetoric and just intensified the divide. And I realized we have to do something about that. I mean, the facts are there. If you live near a mountaintop removal mine, there's you're twice as likely to get cancer. There's a 43% increase in birth defects. But as long as people do not believe the environmentalists, as long as they're able to discredit them as being eccentric and uh, tree huggers, tree huggers, mm-hmm. and then they'll just continue believing that that is overstated. You know, people with an agenda trying mm-hmm. to sell solar panels and wind turbines, and that climate change is a hoax and everything else. And so, do you consider yourself to be an environmental activist, but a new breed of environmental activist? I've actually. I've disconnected myself from the term entirely, especially whenever working in Appalachia. I cannot get into a conversation with anybody and have any credibility as an environmental activist. It is so polarized. So I have to choose different means of communicating with communities that uh, talks to their daily lives. So a What I tend to work towards is a just transition, economic development in terms of working in Appalachia, uh, as well as uh, just energy transition. The the, the fact of the matter is people outside of the region, because of the national media, think that coal miners just want to mine coal, that it's purely a desire to to go underground and, and do this job. But the fact of the matter is, is most of the guys that I worked with would have left the mines in a heartbeat 
had they get, been given an economic alternative, another job to take. You know, I worked with a guy who was in his uh, late 50s. He says, you know, if I was in my 30s, I'd grab my work bucket and I would get out of this mines and I'd never look back. So what does a just transition look to you? That's a tough one. Uh, I mean, whenever you get right down to it and start examining the issues that Appalachia faces, number one, the cultural hegemony that's occurred because of this recent jobs versus environment debate. Yeah the continued political power and economic power of the industry, they are maintaining a captive workforce. And I believe this to be actively maintaining a captive workforce. uh, In the case of my home area of southwestern Virginia, the Virginia Coalfield Economic Development Authority up until just a couple of years ago was boarded or had a board of directors that was half coal industry officials. And of course, What did they bring in uh, during the coal industry's peak this last time around? The Appalachian American Energy Research uh, Center. Mm. They discussed, you know, doing some research into boron-based cold fusion, but then they also had a a couple of companies starting up in there working on clean coal technology. So just one example of many of how economic development is, to me, political maneuvering and tongue-in-cheek kind of, we're going to do this to maintain votes, but truth is, we need to keep a captive workforce so people will be willing to go working in the mines rather than have alternatives. So it sounds to me like the separation of the coal mining industry and government is what could make the biggest difference in that region so that these governments are no longer funded, the school systems aren't coal school systems anymore. Exactly. And it has to deal with also land ownership, too. One of the reasons our public school systems were so underfunded is because the majority of land is owned by out-of-state companies. Mm -hmm. Do they want to pay higher taxes? Mm -hmm. No, they don't. So we have really low property taxes, extremely low, which helps because of the extensive poverty that the mono economy has created. It helps people maintain their land. But at the same time, our public school systems suffer deeply. In Dickinson County, my home county, they weren't able to build a new high school in 50 years because they didn't have the funding, 60 years actually. And the only way they got that funding was through the Army Corps of Engineers and the United States Department of Agriculture. They did a study to find out that a lot of the schools were in floodplains, and so it freed up federal funding. But the following year that they opened it, they had to lay off 42 teachers. It, um, it works in a lot of ways to the advantage of the industry too to have poorly funded school systems. Yeah. So does just transition mean there's a greater percentage of renewables in the mix? Or what does that look like in terms of energy? In, in terms of energy, whenever I think of just transition nationally or even globally, it is in which we begin to look at renewables. But first and foremost, we have to look at our consumption. You know, uh, sure. solar, wind are wonderful things. But Jacobson's paradox is that, you know, the more it will create, the more we'll just continue to consume. So we have to be able to reduce our consumption. We have to really bring in energy efficiency, which a lot of people are beginning to call our first fuel. And in doing so, we can provide jobs. You know, you can take coal miners and retrain them in building trades sure. uh, to work on infrastructure. Uh, the Coalfield uh, Development Corporation is working to do those sorts of things. So we, we have so many opportunities to employ people who were originally tied to the fossil fuel industries. And in terms of a just transition, it gives them an opportunity to make uh, the same or near wages that they had once made. Mm-hmm. 
You know, as a mine electrician, I made $28 an hour. What I didn't find out until later was that outside of the mines, working a prevailing wage job as a four-year journeyman electrician, I could make $28 an hour. Yeah. Um, so, but there's a reason that the mine electrical certification doesn't transfer over to journeyman uh, or any other kind of residential commercial. Mm-hmm. So we have to we have to eliminate those roadblocks. We have to invest in this retraining, but we also have to provide jobs. And that's going to take investments into energy efficiency to create jobs and to rebuild our infrastructure to be more efficient and to help people as well. Mm-hmm. So I think that's one piece of it. Sure, There's a lot more there. Appalachia has a lot of problems, unfortunately, because of the mono economy uh, created poverty. So one of the things I'm curious about is this getting back to the messaging issue, how you position yourself. When I was reading your blog, The Thoughtful Coal Miner, which I really enjoy and just subscribe to, you seem to be positioning yourself as a sign of bridge person between the, the environmentalists and the coal folks and whatever. How do you see it? Yeah. I, I try to, I do try to position myself between and I try to speak to working class communities and families because that's my background. Sure. You know, that was my background up until I was 30 years old. So, uh, and I, I understand where people are coming from and what they need. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I understand what environmentalists are wanting to accomplish and the need to accomplish those things. I mean, we're talking about the future health of, our, uh, of generations to come, including my own children. So it's a matter of being able to speak to both audiences. But I do tend to try to work a little bit more these days within the environmental advocacy organizations, uh, reaching out to um, colleges and universities and the schools for their environment and so on to get people to understand that you don't necessarily have to parachute into these frontline communities in order to treat the symptoms of the problem whenever we could be working on the source of our problems. Sure in our own communities. Uh, So it's really just a a very diverse range of work that I do from the thoughtful coal miner, from doing speaking and trying to work with organizations who are actively looking to better their messaging and and communicate across those political and uh, cultural divides. To to the end that we have less polarization, that's what I was picking up from your blog. Yes, absolutely, because we can't continue with this extreme left, extreme right, polarization. Mm -hmm. We are all on the same page. Just so many people don't realize it. On the environmentalist side, what do you find the hardest problem? Well, just taking agency in their communications and the outcome of their communications. A lot of people just want to keep repeating the same processes. They want to keep doing the same things over and over because it's what they know how to do. Mm-hmm. In the case of Appalachia, I really got the sense that environmental organizers uh, and gra- so-called grassroots organizations just finally gave up on trying to talk to coal miners and coal mining communities. And they're just fighting the industry, working legal battles, trying to get funding, and they just continue the same things because they have polarized themselves to where they can't connect and talk to coal mining families. They can't get on the same page. Mm. So it's it's getting them to understand that you have to take a few steps back, that everybody has a role and that sometimes that role isn't doing tree sits and doing banner drops <laughs> and bringing, right. you know, and, ha- and having mass marches that, you know, that clog up city centers and 
it feels great that you're doing it and you're empowered and everybody's in there doing wonderful things and everybody's like-minded, but you know, somebody a block or two away is screaming because they can't get to work on time because of a bunch of, you know, environmental hippies. That's the unfortunate side. That's the unfortunate uh, stereotype that is given to environmentalists. And they have to understand that if, as long as they're seen as that way and that they aren't willing to communicate across lines, uh, that they're going to continue to come across as elitist. And people in frontline communities just don't want to listen to that. So what would your message of hope be if you were going to encourage people to get involved to help improve this transition, this just transition away from coal? What would you encourage people to do? Mm. Well, I mean, everybody has their part. One is educate themselves. One thing I know is that we can all work to be more sustainable, to be more efficient, to use less resources. Um, and that first fuel you were talking that about. That first fuel. Yeah. Uh, we can reduce our impacts. But at the same time, we have to work within our own communities and within our own, uh, as social judgments theory says, our own latitudes of acceptance uh, with people who, you know, we can communicate with and connect with and have credibility with. Talk to people, you know, discuss the issues, but not in such a way that it, is, it comes across as extreme or eccentric even. We have to start communicating with people that appear to be polar opposite to us. I think that is one of the big things. Rather than just throwing our hands up in the air and just calling people names, uh, find some moral humility, as one of my friends once said. A lot of people, I feel, are looking at Appalachia and looking down their nose at Appalachia for the recent you know, presidential election. They're labeling them as the deplorables, the racists, the bigots, but that's not true. Not in all cases. There's, I'm not going to say there's, it doesn't exist. It does exist in small pockets, but by and large, people voted for Trump because they believed he was going to help them and their families and their community, and they felt he was an honest, trustworthy person. Because that was what he promised. He and, promised to help the miners. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And whenever someone like Donald Trump gains people's trust and the opposition doesn't, that says something about the opposition's message mm -hmm. and way of going about things. You can have all the logic in the world, but unless you had the credibility and the emotional pill and you know how to talk to people on the front lines and address their issues, you're not going to get very far with them. You know, I feel, I feel a, a lot of liberal elitism occurs within environmental organizations. And, you know, I, uh, I, I see people pushing local people away that could become excellent grassroots organizers, but they don't fall within the mold. I want to bring up a topic. I mean, you just mentioned grassroots organizing in the local communities. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is what traditionally labor did. Yes. Right? Yes. I mean, and and the fact, I mean, mining was a very dangerous industry, mm -hmm. and it was organized labor that made it better for everybody concerned. Absolutely. So do you think that that intersection of old-style union organizing and newer, more environmental organizing can come together? Well, it was tried. Mm -hmm. um, in 2011, they had the March on Blair Mountain. The original March on Blair Mountain occurred in 1921. 20,000-some miners, unionized miners from northern West Virginia, marched to southern West Virginia to help you know the, the miners there organize and beat out the terrible 
situations that were occurring in, in the southern coal fields. You know, it led to like the Mate One Massacre, for mm-hmm. instance. Well, in 2011, environmental organizers, local historians, um, decided, yeah, this is what we need to do. Mm. So they replicated the march on Blair Mountain, and they got buy-in from the local unions. But by and large, the majority of people that you see that were marching were not from within the region. Mm. A lot of, you know, unfortunately, some of them looked very different than the people that were from the region. And there were counter-protests set up by local people that were telling, you know, go home tree huggers. There was cases in which some local people wouldn't allow them to get anywhere near their property. Uh, They were disallowed from being able to camp out at places that they had initially agreed to camp out. And so those were all community pushbacks on that. Uh, And unfortunately, I, I feel like it might have even tainted labor to some degree. On the other side of it, the United Mine Workers has come out against the Clean Power Plan. They were there at the EPA hearings in Pittsburgh in force and actually clashed with environmental activists from the Sierra Club that had convened there. It's in the, the uh, documentary Blood on the Mountain, some excellent footage of that. But yeah, Cecil Roberts was up there you know, preaching against the Clean Power Plan. Even the unions are trying to preserve the industry to, to continue on the coal mining so that they can continue filling the pension coffers and things. So very difficult situation there. I have a question about, you went back to school Mm -hmm. in Kentucky and Berea? Yes. College. What's the role of places like Berea in uh, that just transition? Oh, well, uh, Berea College is truly an amazing institution. I will say that first and foremost. I mean, any any institution that one was uh, created to, and was the first fully integrated uh, college in the South in 1865 with a 50% African American freed slaves, 50% you know white. Oh, wow, I didn't realize that. Yes, mm-hmm. as well as offer every student a free tuition if they're accepted because they believe in investing in the lives of great promise. Fantastic. Yes, you have to be low income to get in, uh, so they they really invest in people's in, in young people's ideas and missions, and the desire to to do things better. So it's, uh, there's a lot of programs that Berea is, is involved in that's to definitely to, to help better life in Appalachia. Liberal arts colleges that really give people a broad understanding of their role in society and our place in the world is, is deeply necessary if we're going to achieve any sort of just transition. Well, with that thought, we're going to have to close. And we always ask this question. If you had a magic wand... Mm. You could wave it, and you could make one thing better, say, in Appalachia, but also better for the world at large and for the climate. What would that be? Hmm. I think that everybody becomes instantly knowledgeable about our impacts on other places and becomes motivated to, to work towards a more sustainable and resilient future. Uh, and are more informed and continue to wish to be more informed on the issues instead of just browbeaten with all of the the public relations uh, that's mm-hmm. coming from corporations. Mm-hmm. So a well-educated democratic populace that that's not so, again, cheated out of, of, of good information and are so misinformed by other people. I like that answer. I feel like that's a... 
a manageable magic wand yeah. to be informed and to be educated. Absolutely. As long as we can do it without coming across as a bunch of liberal elitists <laughs> <laughs> who've gotten above the raising. <laughs> Amen. Well, thank you thank so you much. Thank you so much. Thanks, Nick. It was great talking with you today. Thank you all. That was a fascinating perspective. It was so good. And I have to say that it was not an interview we had solicited ourselves. Nick came our way through yep. a common friend. I'm so glad that that happened. Absolutely. It and was it was wonderful having such a a human mm. perspective. It was it was emotional and it was touching and it was it was interesting to hear his story and how essentially we are we are failing as environmental activists when we're trying to communicate with communities like the coal mining communities and the Appalachian people. And every issue of justice is going to be like that. Absolutely. Right? That that it is about those very raw emotions and about how um, there are struggles going on everywhere and people are trying to find out how they're going to manage their communities, how they're going to address problems as they come up, but Absolutely. then work with others. Yeah, and that's what we want to touch on this season. We want to start exploring how are different communities, whether they be coal mining communities, whether they be marginalized groups and Aboriginal people, we want to think about and start discussing how are they affected by climate change and how are they involved in climate action? And we are, I think, just beginning to understand the complexities of these issues. So Absolutely. if you have any thoughts that you would like to share with us, please do. As usual, we are on Facebook, on Twitter, or send us an email at climatex at mit.edu. Yeah, or you can write a post on ClimateX. If you want to get in touch with our community, get some feedback on ideas, please do uh, sign up to the site. Thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>